The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way. And that's with Babbel. Be a better you in 2024 with Babbel, the science-backed language learning app that actually works. Don't pay hundreds of dollars for private tutors or waste hours on apps that don't really help you speak the language. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts and help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's designed by real people for real conversations, and their tips and tools are approachable, accessible, rooted in real-life situations, and delivered with conversation-based teaching, so you're ready to practice what you've learned in the real world. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription at babbel.com slash bluewire. That's 60% off at babbel.com slash bluewire, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash bluewire. Rules and restrictions apply. everybody to another episode of Benched with Bubba episode 276 got a recurring guest on the show good friend of the show you can find him on Twitter at fantasy underscore Esquire his work over at pitcherlist.com Dan Richards how we doing my friend I'm good man I miss baseball but I do appreciate you having me on uh, as always yeah no doubt about it we, we all miss the game for sure but uh, we've been in touch over the last few weeks you've had some awesome work come out over at pitcherlist so um, you know, we're going to talk about your last three articles, but anything you want to plug, uh, I know as we record, there's like a half an hour left and pitcher list and sleeper on the bus are tied. So by the time we finish this, we'll know who's in the finals of the baseball puns. Yeah, I don't usually participate in stuff like that, but I would like to see pitcher list just, you know, Nick and Alex do such a great job and John and Dave on the hitter podcast too. And now they're doing this talking pitching thing where they're actually talking with Major League Baseball players, which I think is really cool. So it'd be great to see them and their efforts get rewarded and everything, you know. Yeah, I'm with you. I absolutely love the talking pitching stuff, like the one they had this week with Lewis. That was awesome, just kind of getting the, the Aussie perspective on things, like some of the things he was saying was was hilarious. But uh, just the, yeah. di- the different the different guys they've had on, just the way that professional, like, you know, playing baseball or anything in life, you, you have a remembrance of, like, someone you care about, you really remember certain details of things. The way these pictures mm-hmm. can remember to a T, like, this guy hit a home run off of me, like, six and a half years ago. And this guy's was, this was the six pitches I threw in this one at bat seven years ago. Like, it's amazing what these guys remember. I really liked um, Jamison Sion's interview where he talked mm-hmm. about how he game plans for a few hitters in every lineup and he doesn't for the others. And he just kind of, so for the like six hitters in the lineup, the normal hitters, he just 
tries to beat them with his best stuff. But then for three hitters, he knows that um, if his best stuff is a strength for them, he needs to go to something that's a weakness for him to exploit a weakness for them because his strength against their strength is not always good enough, which I thought was really cool. It is really cool to hear how they they attack things like that with Ty on talking about kind of giving us an even more idea. We kind of heard about it in early spring, but then hearing him talk about the the, the different philosophy the Pirates are using. They're using technology, yeah. pitching coaches. So that kind of gives us a little little insight there. Um, I love Trevor Mays. Like it's hard not to like what, what May what May did there. It was just he was so fun um, and reliving that whole thing was great. Um, Jeremy Blevins was a great one. They've, They've all had phenomenal interviews. I can't wait to see who they keep coming up with down the pipeline. There's been a lot of fun. It's like it's not super long or 20 to 30 minutes, but you know, you, you can tell these guys enjoy just talking the craft and not having to talk about, you know, the million questions on what went wrong that night or something like that after a ball game. So it was it's pretty cool to listen to. Yeah. Some some big names too. Jamison Tyone, Jesus Luzardo. Like those are those are guys that we draft every year. Um, very good pitchers. It'll be exciting to see if they can get on going forward because i imagine the more pitchers you have on the easier it is to get the really big name guys you know agreed they you know they all you know, they, a lot of them are all friends and they're all talking to each other and it just takes yeah. one or two guys really enjoying it going yeah these guys are cool go chat with them for a little bit it's fun like they actually know what they're talking about go 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 have a good time so i'm looking forward to it um but we're here to talk about your your recent work here at pitcher list and you did a couple different articles on hitting like, um, you know, we talk plate discipline a lot and how some guys are really good at it. Some guys aren't uh, guys that have improved at it, so on and so forth. You did an article on um, patience at the plate and then aggressiveness at the plate. Let's start with your mm-hmm. patience article. What were you trying to find out when you you dug in on, you know, you title it as patience of virtue? What's, what, are you, what are you trying to figure out there? So the first thing that got me going was seeing, I was just going through Mike Trout's Fangraphs page. I think I was prompted by like, you know, whether he is a Hall of Famer or by how much. And, you know, I mean, I think he's, it's obvious he is, but just I was kind of struck by the fact that his strikeout rate is pretty high um, considering he's the best player in baseball. And you'd think that it, it would not be at a league average rate, um, but it is every year. Um, and so that got me thinking, you know, why? And does that matter less for him? Because um, for some reason he's able to compensate for that um, in other ways. And so one thing that stood out to me is that um, if you go to the Fangraphs leaderboards um, and sort by swing rate, he's typically on the low end, the like top five or bottom five, if you want to look at it that way in swing rate. Um, and that's, I guess, an approach that works for him, even though he, you know, strikes out quite a bit, he must be doing something else by being so patient, swinging at the right pitches. So um, from there, I wanted to see if just being patient in general is a good approach at the plate because the best hitter in baseball is doing it. Um, so I grabbed um, the 60 players with the lowest single season swing rates um, for 2017, 18, and 19. Um, so a really low swing rate would be like 34%. Um, and then I wanted to just basically compare them um, to how all the other hitters in MLB did throughout that time and and to see what makes because not every single one of them was successful. And in fact, many of them weren't. Um, And so what makes certain ones successful as opposed to others? And by success, I was measuring it in terms of batting average because, you know, I write about fantasy baseball. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, so so the first interesting thing that I found was that um, 
these hitters tend to run very, very low swinging strike rates, but completely normal strikeout rates. So their average strikeout rate was comparable about 19, 20% to the MLB average, uh, but their swinging strike rate was really low, 7.5% on average for these 60 single season players. Um, the reason for that, I think, is because they swing so infrequently, they put few balls into play. So they also see more pitches, uh, balls and called strikes. So they tend to have elevated walk rates as well. Um, they average like a 13.5% walk rate versus the MLB average is around 9%. Um, so they're putting fewer balls into play. They're walking more. They're striking out more. So if you were to say, hey, I might want to trade for, you know, Daniel Vogelback because he has a very low um, swinging strike rate and his strikeout rate is kind of high. So like that's probably going to change in the future. You might want to think twice because he doesn't swing very frequently. He sees so many called strikes that he underperforms uh, his expected strikeout rate based on his swinging strike rate. Hey, I got a couple of questions for you here because you, you have the chart, the low swinging percent hitter averages, and you have the swinging percent, and there's the O swing, the zone swing, all, the, all that good yeah. stuff. Um, did you find any correlations? Because uh, you're, you're mainly using just overall swing percentage, right? Not like an O swing or a zone swing type situation uh, when you're analyzing this. Right. So to sort out the – so basically I compared hitters. I grabbed 60 single seasons from the last three years of the players with the lowest swing rates and compared, like grouped their stats together gotcha. and compared that to the entirety of MLB throughout that time. Gotcha. Because what I'm wondering, because, um, you know, you said the swing and strike rates lower, but they strike out the same. I wonder mm -hmm. if we looked at it more of um, almost do a CSW with these guys called strikes and swinging strikes and see how those correlate together. Because you'd have to imagine some of these guys that are super patient at the plate it might be the old adage when we were growing up that, you know, take the first strike um, and stuff like that. And I wonder how many of these guys take a bunch of strikes compared to maybe guys that swing the bat more, if that makes any sense. Right. And I think that's a good point. I think that their CSW rates would be relatively comparable to mm -hmm. the rest of MLB, which is why their strikeout rates are basically the same. What we're not seeing when we look at their fan graphs pages is we're not seeing a called strike rate because it's just not something that they put on players. Uh, pages. So you see their swinging strike rates really low and you think, okay, maybe their strikeout rate is going to improve. Chances are it won't just because they're taking so many called strikes. That's their approach at the plate, like Mike yeah. Trout, Reese Hoskins, and other patient hitters. Yeah, no doubt about it. I, this is a, a really interesting thing to me because we're going to get into your aggressive article and it'll, it'll all kind of come together once we talk about both of them. So I don't want to try to ask too many questions out of the gate, but it just, it, it's really interesting to me because we're in an era now where strikeouts are kind of not really, you know, frowned upon like they used to be back in the day. If you look at like the nineties and stuff, the way guys didn't strike out much, they hit for high average, all these different things. And then nowadays where it's flipped on the end, like a two fifty average, you know, isn't great, but it's not like bad. Like it's, it's acceptable if you're hitting, you know, 25, 30 plus home runs and you're probably striking out 25% or more of the time. So it's just one of those things we see right now. And your, your chart shows pretty much all these guys that if, if they, swing less compared to the MLB average, they're still pretty, you know, comparable, like you said, outside of swing strike and walks. So that's pretty interesting looking at all that. Uh, what did you find when you, when you broke it down even farther um, with the, these low swing hitters with the R2s and all that stuff? Yeah. So um, in some ways they're comparable to, so basically what I did was I took these 
60 hitters and I took their swing rates, O swing, Z swing, all the way down through their plate discipline metrics and their BABIPs as well. And I just looked at the correlation between uh, those metrics for these hitters and their batting averages. Um, and what I found was that um, interestingly, Z contact percentage had a very high R squared uh, with batting average. So in other words, if you take these 60 hitters and you say, who does well in batting average? Like what explains the variation in the sample of the batting averages? Uh, Z contact explained quite a significant amount of variation relative to uh, doing the same analysis, but for all MLB hitters. Um, so Z contact rate um, matters a lot for these guys in determining who's going to have a high batting average if you're a patient hitter and who's not going to have a high batting average if you're a patient hitter. And I think that a big part of that is, and, and also their swinging strike rates too, explained um, a really large part of it. But what's going on there, it goes back to the, the called strikes. Um, so basically, if they're looking at too many called strikes, it's really important that when they do choose to swing, um, that they make contact on their swings in the zone and that they make contact in general. So that's Z contact rate and swinging strike rate. So in other words, there are so few opportunities to put the ball in play because they swing so infrequently that they have to maximize those opportunities. And if they're not doing so, um, then they can wind up with a low batting average. So um, a fun example of that is Reese Hoskins because in 2017, he had a very brief debut and he basically um, had a really low BABIP. He had a 241 BABIP and a 259 average. And he had a really low swinging strike rate, about 7%. And so if you're just looking at those things, you might think in 2018, well, you know, he could hit 270 or 280 because his BABIP could go up and he has such great plate discipline. Um, but in reality, his BABIP did go up in 2018 and 19 to 270. And his batting average went down quite a bit. Uh, to 246 and 226 in 18 and 19, respectively. Um, and the reason for that is that his Z contact rate fell and his swinging strike rate fell. So even though his swing rate basically stayed the same, it went up a little bit, his other, like he, he kept, he remained a patient hitter and his BABIP improved, but he was not as uh, discerning at the plate. He wasn't as properly selective with the pitches that he swung at. And so he made less contact in the zone and he made less contact in general. And that hurt his batting average quite a bit. That's interesting because everyone, Reese Hoskins is one of those guys that we're trying to kind of figure out what's going on, what went wrong. And maybe it's as simple as that. Like you're pointing out, let's just look at the basics here. You know, he's swinging at this, his zone contacts this, and you start piecing these things together. It makes a lot more sense than you know, he just wasn't hitting the ball hard, or he did a swing change, or these other things we're all trying to think of, which, you know, maybe has something to do with it, no doubt about it. But in the grand scheme of things, it could be something just like you're saying, look at his own contact going down, his swinging strike rate went up, and, you know, you just keep, you know, the numbers just keep kind of falling down as they go. It, it does stand out quite a bit. So when we're looking at these guys that are um, being patient at the plate, what's your overall – um, conclusion of this. What what can we utilize this for, say, from a fantasy perspective? So if I'm looking to trade, uh, say I am looking to trade for um, a hitter and I see that his um, swinging strike rate is very low, but his strikeout rate is average or pretty high, um, I want to look for his swing rate first. If his swing rate is, is low, then that means that regression probably isn't coming. Um, 
if I'm befuddled as to why, um, you know, I own a player and his batting average isn't getting better um, and he's a patient hitter, then I should look at his Z contact rate and I should look at his swinging strike rate because if he, like you have, you have to have an elite swinging strike rate to be a, a successful patient hitter. Really elite. Like we're talking like 6%, like Mike Trout levels, you know, Joey Bottles levels, better than what Reese Hoskins was doing to maintain a high batting average. Because if you don't, there are just so few opportunities to hit the ball and put it in play if you're only swinging a third of the time. Um, mm-hmm. And another thing I'd look at is their Babbitt. You know, like Babbitt, if you look at the uh, table in my article, Babbitt was just as, if not slightly more important for determining which of these 60 hitters would have a high batting average um, as it is for the whole of the league. So, um, again, like Mike Trout has a much better batted ball profile than Reese Hoskins does. And so he's more likely to run a 300 or higher BABIP and he's more likely to have an average, a higher average. And that, that goes for any player, but um, it especially matters for these players. Yeah, it's an interesting way to look at it because, you know, like I said a second ago, when we're trying to figure out, you know, maybe guys to break out and other things like on Baseball Savant, for instance, I will kind of look at the, you know, zone contact, zone swings, all these different aspects of it. But it doesn't always have like the swinging strikes like you have on fan graphs and some of the other things that you were utilizing. So one of these days we'll have it all in one spot. But, <laughs> but for now, yeah, we got to keep got to keep piecing it all together. And it's cool to have articles like this to kind of help. uh pointed out and the following week or so you came out with does it pay to be aggressive for me it was kind of a offset of uh you know we had a patience article now let's look at these these aggressive hitters uh what what did you find with guys with high swing percentages yeah so i did the exact same thing um i took the 60 single season highest swing rates back through 2017 and i just took the averages of their play discipline metrics and what stood out to me was that um these hitters did better in terms of batting average and BABIP on average than the MLB average. Um, they did worse in swinging strike rate, but they actually did better in strikeout rate. So we sort of have the inverse of what was going on before and they had very low walk rates. And one thing that I found was interesting was that even though um, their batting averages were better and that's important for fantasy baseball, they had a very low average WRC plus of just 105 relative to the 2017 to 19 average of 112. And that's not the actual average of all hitters through those years, just the qualified hitters on Fangraph. Um, but qualified hitters did better than these 60 uh, aggressive hitters did in terms of WRC plus. Um, but just going back to the swinging strike rate, um, I think it's important because again, you have a scenario where you might look at the swinging strike rate and expect one thing and get another. And it's just the inverse of what was going on with the patient hitters. These guys swing so much, they put so many balls into play that they see fewer called strikes and therefore their swinging strike rates matter less to their strikeout rates because they have fewer opportunities to strike out. Um, And the same thing for walks. They walk less because they don't get into deep counts as often because they put the ball into play often because they swing a lot. Yeah, no, it's it's definitely uh, – I'm kind of leaning towards like the new era, like I was saying a little bit ago, is kind of the more – the higher swing, per, swing percentage guys, more aggressive in the box type situation. It's interesting to me. It's like when you had your, your low swing chart, now you have your high swing chart, and there are a lot of similarities. And you're like, like you did say, like the obviously the walks are different because they're not going to walk as much and they're putting the ball in place so much. 
Uh, the BABIP will be a little higher, as you'd expect. Uh, the batting average is higher as well, but you know, like mm-hmm. your WRC plus is higher for the guys that are a little more patient. Uh, it's just it's it's an interesting, I guess, conundrum between the two when you look at it all. When you dug uh, even deeper on um, this uh, aggressiveness, you have the benefits from aggression. What are some of the things you saw? Like, what benefits did you see from guys being much more aggressive in the box? I mean, I think that you you kind of hit the nail on the head before these hitters can maintain higher batting averages and it's sort of like the new wave of hitting where they just sort of swing at everything. And that's what got me on this in the first place is, you know, how does a guy like Javi Baez or Tim Anderson, you know, these guys with like 17% swinging strike rates, how do these guys uh, hit 280 or Tim Anderson win a batting title? Like it's just strange. Um, And I think a few years ago, we probably would have scoffed at them and just said, they're not repeating that, but now we kind of look a little deeper into it and, in terms of the benefits and just, you know, the correlations, I, the one thing about aggressive hitting is that um, the plate decimal metrics basically didn't matter. So when we isolate the 60 players and we say who had a better batting average and what explained that batting average relative to the other 59 hitters in the sample, BABIP accounted for a huge amount of that variation, more than if you took the whole sample of MLB players and said what accounts for the variation in their batting average in their batting averages. So BABIP accounted for about 70% of the variation among these 60 hitters batting averages. And um, that's that's really the key. Um, so, you know, if you have a player like Jeff McNeil who's swinging 60% of the time, um, if he's putting the ball in play a lot, it really, really, really matters if he's able to get on base when he puts the ball in play uh, for his batting average, that is. Yeah, it's kind of the old philosophy, you know, put the ball in play and make these guys make a play. Don't help them out by, you know, taking strikes or, you know, walk. walking's fine to get on base, but the more you put the ball in play, the more you put pressure on a defense to make a play. As simple as it might seem, this, you feel the ball, you throw the ball, you catch the ball, that's three things they got to do correct to get you out. Or if you just put the ball in play, you never know. Things can happen. Um, I know when we talked to John Metzler with his ideal contact rate, there's there's all different ways to analyze quality of contact. And I think a lot of that kind of contact, you can kind of use that metric and then go with this aggressive hitter idea. And he's like the swinging strike and, and those situations, swinging percentage and whatnot, and kind of get an idea. You know, this guy swings a lot. He's got an ideal contact rate. Here we go. So the, I think there's a lot of ways to, to correlate these two things together. Uh, one thing you have here is the zone swing percentage has a pretty pretty high relation to batting average compared to just the average MLB uh, player. It's not like as high as Babbitt, obviously, but it's, it's a high outlier in the scenario. I think it's very interesting because it, it goes back to the patience thing. It's one thing I talk about with, with Kevin Biggio quite a bit. It's if he was just more aggressive, because he's got a high strikeout rate, phenomenal OBP guy, but the average just isn't there. It's like he's too patient. He's too patient at the plate. Um, you see these aggressive guys, sure, they might you know swing a little more outside the zone and whatnot, but they're also swinging much more often in the zone. So I think that's a tremendous thing. I, obviously, you were saying this, but I'm just kind of reiterating it. Um, th- this is one thing I, I'm curious to get your opinion on because like, I was looking at Domingo Santana the other day and some mm-hmm. other kind of deeper guys looking for value, looking for guys that might improve on the years past or, hey, what went wrong type situations. And you look at their zone swing, zone contact, their O swing, O contact. You look at some of these things, and some guys are really good. Like, you know, you were talking Javi Baez. How does he make such good, like, do so well when he swings out of the zone so much? Well, he's aggressive, and he takes advantage of it. Have you – maybe you haven't looked at it yet. Maybe this is a very long-winded, diluted question. But have you looked at maybe guys that have improved just their 
contact on you know contact and their swing because some guys will still swing a lot and not make contact if this makes any sense have you looked into something similar in that direction at all so you mean where they improve uh, so like a, an aggressive hitter who one year was bad but the next year was good because he was able to make more contact yeah is that like i know it's probably not like sticky but you know there's so many years where I'd, I'd be like, I'm not buying into Javi Baez. You look at his profile, he swings so much out of the zone. Like you can't stay like that successful and he keeps right. doing it. Have we found right. something? And he's just the easiest example, but there's a lot of guys nowadays that are just being aggressive like that. Have you noticed anything like that? So one thing that I would say is that when we evaluate, um, when we evaluate, a hitter's batting average. And we're just talking about batting average. We're not talking about whether they're, you know, good overall hitter. Um, we shouldn't look too much at O swing rate, like how much they swing out of the zone. That actually has a very high correlation with walk rate, but it has very little to do with batting average. Um, because basically it's just whether you're swinging at pitches that would otherwise walk you. Um, mm -hmm. And so if you look at the chart um, in my article, um, there's a correlation for, uh, or basically I have the R squared for O swing rate to the 60 hitters batting averages and it's zero. And I have the same thing for the entire sample of MLB hitters and it's 0 0.01. So in other words, um, swinging outside of the zone is not a good measure of whether or not a hitter will have a good or a bad batting average. But what I will say is that if you want to discern between um, aggressive hitters who will have high batting averages and aggressive hitters who will not have high batting averages, bearing in mind that on average, these hitters do better in batting average than the rest of the league. The best place to look is their BABIP because the BABIP um, matters more for these hitters than other hitters. Um, so if you want to, if let's say, uh, well, actually Tim Anderson is a great example where he had um, a pretty mediocre batting average the last couple of years, but in 2019, he was the batting champion in the American League. And so um, if you look at, I, I would assume, and actually I'm going to look right now, but I would assume that that's almost entirely Babbitt driven because he's so aggressive. He puts the ball in play a ton. If he's, if his hits are fall, if his balls in play are falling in for hits, he's going to have a high batting average. And if not, um, he won't. And his strikeout rate has very little to do with basically his batting average. And, uh, lo and behold, his BABIP in 2017 was 328. In 2018, it was 289. And last year, it was 399. So um, the example that I use in the article is Eddie Rosario and Jeff McNeil, because they both had two of the highest swing rates in baseball at all in the last three years, um, about 60%. They both had very high swinging strike rates. They both had low strikeout rates. Uh, they had very similar plate discipline. The only thing is, McNeil had over a 300 batting average and I'm talking about 2019 McNeil had a very good batting average and Rosario had a mediocre batting average because McNeil had a much better Babbitt because he puts a lot of line drives in the play because he puts a lot of ground balls in the play uh, whereas Rosario pulls a lot of fly balls basically um, and so that's that's really for these types of hitters you know you're really aggressive like your Mondesi types what matters most is whether they have um, a batted ball profile that lends itself to a high batting average to a high yeah, batting and i like this discussion because i got I, and that's why i'm just kind of taking it down random ways to see where we can keep going with it 
because yeah. you know we, we we look at like I said the modern day of baseball where I I when I analyze hitters I look at like a 250 average and I'm not like I'm not turned off like a lot of people are like I get it you're gonna have to draft some guys with better batting average on your team but you'll listen to some analysts and they'll be like nope not even gonna mess with this guy because it's a bad batting average but you know you look at season's end in a fantasy league what's 270 ish gonna finish you at least in the top half of a roto league if not higher in just that category. So you know you don't right. you don't need a you don't need a big gap like you used to. You didn't you don't have to hit two ninety or something. It's it's a big difference nowadays. So I think when people point at guys that strike out a lot, they they kind of turn it off. And you mentioned Tim Anderson, and this is a this is a really fun one for me because a guy I was torn on so much early in the season, and one I guess you know I look for any caveat of a delayed season as being a good thing. It's helped me dig in on players more, and I'm really learned to buy in on Keston Hira. And one of the biggest arguments mm-hmm. for Hira is he struck out almost 31% of the time last year. He struck out over 26% of the time in AAA, but he had a 402 Babbitt. So it's one of those things, like you said, sure, maybe he's striking out a ton, but he's still being very aggressive. His Babbitt's through the roof. That's why he'll, he still hit 303, hits the ball hard, still almost hit 20 homers. You look at his Babbitt throughout the minors, outside of one season, they were basically 386 or higher every season. Thus, in all of those seasons, he hit 320 or higher everywhere he went except 303 with the Brewers. Like the dude is, I think, a pretty good hitter. I and it, correct me if I'm wrong. I'm just using it as a as a talking point here. I right. think like the, the Tim Anderson argument and some of these, this can be used to actually maybe benefit the cause for Keston here, unless I'm totally misinterpreting this. No, I think that's right, it, and it and it really just depends. Like I haven't taken the time to look at you know what's Keston Hira's line drive rate, what's his fly ball rate, ground ball rate, you know what's his batted ball profile, and would it lend itself to a high BABIP. I do see the 402 BABIP. There are instances where um, a hitter runs a very high BABIP, and this is sort of how we were thinking in 2016 and 17 when we first started, you know, well, maybe not all of us, but when I first started looking into um, peripheral statistics and advanced baseball metrics. But, you know, the way I thought about it was if you have a BABIP that high, it has to go down, and not necessarily. And, um, Sometimes, though, it does. And so a good example of that is like Chris Bryant, where um, his BABIP was pretty high last year, but he had a very low expected batting average um, on StackF because his batted ball profile does not lend itself to a high BABIP. And so he basically got pretty lucky in hitting 280 or whatever he did last year. But I really like the first point that you made, which was that, um, you know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Strikeout rate doesn't really matter. It doesn't if you strike out a lot, it doesn't make you a bad player. So just now I went to the Fangraphs leaderboard. I downloaded the qualified hitters for 2019 and I ran a regression between WRC plus and strikeout rate. And lo and behold, there's a 2.2% or even less um, correlation. I mean, it's just strikeout rate has very little influence on WRC plus WRC plus is a measure of overall offensive performance. Um, So you're, you're right in a sense that being a high strikeout hitter is not necessarily detrimental and and not at all. There's just, it's just not borne out in the numbers. Yeah. And that's why I wanted to ask you your opinion on that, because you know, as well as I do that, that was like a, that's been a massive bugaboo even until now. Like people think, say, if you strike out a lot, you're just like a not disciplined, not good hitter. And like this production is not like sustainable. And we're learning that it is. And that's why I wanted to have this discussion with you because I guess I've said it a few times on the show already. And anybody that's listened to my show enough knows for years, 
I was the anti Javi Baez guy. I wanted nothing to do with a guy that just, to me, undisciplined at the plate. I just wanted nothing to do with that. But as time goes on, you you have to adjust as the game adjusts. And I had him everywhere this year, it seemed like. A, because I thought he was a value. B, I started to believe what he's doing. It's the way he plays baseball. Baseball's changed. He's changed. Like, that's the way the game is changing. We're striking out more. That's just the way it's going to work. So I'm actually going to make notes to, to dig in on this more. Now I'm, like, super intrigued just in this discussion <laughs> we had. Because, like I said, Keston here is one guy I've done a complete 180 on. I wanted nothing to do with him. And the more I've looked, the more I've, I've I've learned that, okay, go ahead, strike out 25 to 30%. I'll live with that as long as you're still hitting two. I'll even take a 280 to 300 average because I believe the power and the hit profiles there. I'm really curious to see who else I can I can find digging in on this uh, some more. Um, what would be your final thoughts on just if you want to c- kind of combine your patience and your aggressive, uh, are you going to do any more work on this? Are you, how are you going to utilize these for your fantasy you know, teams? What, what's the overall consensus of these two pieces? One thing that I do want to look at is whether having a high stringing, you know, what, what makes some of these guys with high swing strike rates specifically good hitters in terms of batting average, like what separates them from other hitters with high swinging strike rates who have terrible batting averages. Um, I would be curious to dig into that. And I do think it's probably BABIP related, um, but I think it's interesting. I, takeaways are um, few and far between. I don't think you can say that, um, I think you can say that on average aggressive hitters are not better MLB hitters than the rest of the league um, in terms of WRC plus that's at least borne out, but um, patience, I think can be a virtue if you're the type of hitter who can, um, you know, really maximize your swings and um, aggressiveness can work to your advantage in terms of batting average. If you have a good batted ball profile. And I also wanted to add, uh, I'm just looking at Keston Hura right now. I see a 266 expected batting average um, with, and this is just from 2019, obviously, but um, he has a far below average ground ball rate um, in terms of stack ass. He has a very high fly ball rate. So those are two bad things for Babbitt, but he also has a high line drive rate, a low pop-up rate, and he pulls the ball infrequently. So those are three good things for Babbitt. So I could see maybe he, I mean, I don't see him hitting, you know, 300 again but he could definitely hit like 280 like you're saying and Mm -hmm. um meet somewhere in the middle with his expected batting average because uh maybe he is just one of those guys that you know swings a lot puts the ball in play a lot i mean his swing percentage is really high it's it's uh 51 percent um but but yeah yeah he's an interesting one too like if you go to fan graphs like i usually like to use the metrics like on savant like you're using right now but they don't have the minor league numbers. And if you like, you look at his, his, his ground ball, fly ball, all those things on, on fan graphs, they're almost like I, within a couple percentage points. He's been that, that type of hitter his whole way. It's another way right. for me to be like, okay, this is something he does. Like, it's just who he is because he's always been a great hitter. He's a great hitter in the college. That's why he went high in the draft. It's been his defense. It's the biggest bugaboo for all these years. So he, he just really he, he intrigues me. Like, he's one of those guys. I don't know why. Now I like I spent too much time. He should have had a season a month ago. Like I, I spent too much time on Keston Hira, but uh, yeah. it's it's interesting to to check out. And like I want to see more in this. I'll just take more deep diving, and not I'm not saying by you, just in general. I want to see how kind of the fluctuation is. Maybe you know you know year two, one year a guy maybe a twenty percent swing. He jumps to like I, it's rare to see a massive jump, but say he jumps like thirty percent, and then he goes back to twenty percent, and he fluctuates a lot. Is there any 
is there any way to find consistency with with uh, guessing his production? I guess type thing because usually you know a guy's either disciplined or he's not. But every now and then you, you see a guy change the way he approaches the plate. So I'm curious to see how that kind of predictive model can be made there as well. But things to think about, that's for sure. All right, let's get into your uh, your pitching piece, and this one really intrigues me. I think it's great because one thing you do and a lot of the guys at Pitcher List do very very well is you break things down for everybody and then you expand on them. And that's something you did in this pitcher piece, which is great because I've been doing this for a while and I still kind of get torn on different things. I know Nick talks about it on the podcast with Alex a lot. He looks like the Sierra and all those things. He loves Sierra, but there's FIP, there's XFIP, there's XCRA, there's Sierra. There's, there's all these things. This is your second time doing an article. Like you're expanding on a previous article that you've done, but first right. off you have the glossary on all the things you did here. What are you trying to explain in this article to add on to your previous one? So, um, and thank you for that lovely intro. Um, a year ago, I wrote about um, ERA indicators. So FIP, XFIP, and Sierra. And basically, um, because I had been using them um, without regard for much understanding um, of them, I wanted to um, not only expand my own understanding, but give people... Um, a sense of why, why you would use one over another, why you would use them at all. Um, and so I took 2017 and 18 numbers and I just wanted to see, you know, which, which one of the three correlates best to ERA and which one of the three was the most predictive of ERA in the following season. Um, and so what I found then was that XFIP and Sierra were more predictive of, none of them were very predictive at all, but those two were more predictive of ERA in 2018, so XFIP and Sierra in 2017 uh, were more predictive of ERA in 2018 than FIP or ERA itself, and FIP was highly correlated with ERA in the same single season. Um, so this time, what I wanted to do was expand the sample because that's obviously a pretty small sample of pitchers. So took data with the help of uh, Tim Ricker um, at PitcherList, who's a great data scientist. Um, we found data going back to 2015. Um, all the way through to 2019. And the first thing we did was we looked at the single season correlations um, to see what was most highly correlated with ERA in the same season. And then the second thing we did was we did um, back-to-back seasons. Um, and we said, what for those four or five years, um, which ERA indicator was most predictive of ERA in the second year? Um, and we also added in XERA, which is StatCast's new ERA indicator. Um, we wanted to see how that st- stacks up to the other one. No, I, I love it because, uh, you know, a lot of people think XFIP's the, 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 the cat's meow. Uh, FIP's obviously there. I know, I'm, I think I remember correctly that um, Alex and Nick like Sierra quite a bit. They like that. I think XERA is great because we're in this era of X stats. We just talked about Keston here as mm-hmm. X and average, X slug, and we use them all the time because obviously they're, they're, they've been proven to be pretty solid predictive measures. Like they're not sticky like a barrel is, but they're pretty confident year in and year out, like a guy underperformed or overperformed, at least gives you an idea of what you're looking at. Right. And I think XERA does that well. I don't know if you looked at Alex Chamberlain's pitch leaderboard, but he has one that really gets my attention. Uh, he has deserved ERA, which is similar to XERA. I'm not sure exactly to what ratio those are, but he has one that mm-hmm. really gets my attention. And I know it needs, he says he's even working on it some more. It's called what if ERA, and it's basically huh. usually it's usually lower. It takes out a couple of factors that really just give you the brass tacks of you know this guy got hit really hard or he didn't is what it comes down to. 
and it's right. really intriguing to me. But you know, with the bouncy ball, what can we? Re- is that a, a usable stat? Who knows? But um, when you looked at the correlations here, obviously a couple of them are pretty light. They line up pretty similar. One stands out a little more than the other. Um, what, what were you finding mm-hmm. by looking at FIP, XFIP, Sierra, and XERA? We're looking at ERA, a stat that we still use in roto leagues and head-to-heads, but in reality, when we're analyzing pitchers, really doesn't matter as much as we think it used to. <laughs> so we had about 700. So we, we did the innings pitched cutoff at 100 innings. So we would basically only get starting pitchers. And we had about 700 um, seasons between 2015 and 19 with 100 innings pitched. And we found that basically FIP is your best in-season uh, correlation to ERA, slightly edging out XERA. Both were pretty good. And XFIP and Sierra were not great. And basically what that means is that, um, so the, the R squared for FIP was 0.61, right? That means that 61% of the variance in those 700 ERAs can be explained by a pitcher's FIP. FIP being his strikeout rate home run rate or his strikeouts, home runs and walks um, because FIP totally ignores balls in play. And so what you can use FIP for, and XERA is pretty similar. It's at 0.58, the R squared. Um, you can use those two metrics and say it's May 1st and you want to see if, you know, in a normal year where there's no coronavirus and you want to see um, in the last, you know, 40 or so days, um, my pitcher has a 1.50 ERA. Is that going like, did he, did he earn that? Was that luck? Um, if his FIP is 4.2, then, you know, it probably was quite a bit of luck and, and batted ball dependent, if anything, because his strikeouts, walks, and home runs would tell you that he did not earn his 1.5 ERA. And XERA is very similar. It can tell you whether the pitcher earned his ERA. Um, it just uses balls and play. It doesn't completely ignore balls and play, but it uses um, – launch angle and um, exit velocity averages and says, okay, he gave up this launch angle and exit velocity on this hit. Um, On average, that would result in this many runs. And and that's how you get um, results for XERA's batted ball. And so those two metrics are great for seeing if a guy got lucky or not in a single season. No, uh, that's really interesting to me because the way they correlate this way, I know FIP is 61%, like you said, and XERA is 58 If I'm going to put you on the spot here. If you had to use just one, which one would you prefer to use? Well, I would use FIP just because the uh, R squared was higher. So okay. FIP had, did a better job. It was, was more highly correlated with gotcha. uh, ERA in those seasons than XERA. But I think that it's probably helpful to check one against the other, you know? So this was this was for end season, as you're saying. It, what did you find out when you, when you looked at you know future seasons and stuff like that with these metrics? Because you know right now, and we've done all off season, we're trying to predict what the player is going to do in 2020. So we're looking at last year's stats. What are you using exactly in that case to figure it out? Yeah, and this is this is the time where you would want to use the ones that do the best looking forward, not in season. The ones that do the best looking backward, and so. You know, again, we had the same sample of pitchers, but this time it was there were only 354 that had back to back 100 innings pitched seasons that we could use. And so basically, um, we used uh, the root mean squared error, which um, is a great measure to determine um, predictiveness because it's scaled to the um, 
to the measure you're using. So say root mean squared error of, let's, let's take ERA for example. If we're looking at this sample of 350 so uh, pitchers, if the root mean squared error from their ERAs in year one is 1.113 as it was that we found um, to their year two ERA, that means that on average, the model built by the year one ERAs had an error of about 1.113 runs. And so, you know, if, if a guy had um, an ERA of three in 2019, and you want to know what his ERA is going to be in 2020, if you just look at his ERA of three, um, it's got a pretty big error to, um, or measure of degree of error uh, relative to what it actually will be in 2020, at least on average. Um, so we did that for ERA, XFIP, FIP, um, Sierra, and uh, XERA. And basically, Sierra and XFIP had the lowest root mean squared error, which is a good thing because you want the, er the average error for your model to be low um, relative to your actual observed values. And so basically, uh, Sierra was slightly better than XFIP with a 0 0.871 uh, root mean squared error, but still, that's a pretty big average error. Like if, if he had a three ERA in a three um, Sierra in um, 2019, um, he could have, if you're just looking at Sierra, he could have a 3.871, you know, ERA in 2020 based on his 2019, uh, Sierra, like that's the degree of error there. So none of these metrics are great, uh, but Sierra was the best. And one thing that we found that was really interesting was that actually, um, strikeout minus walk rate, um, had a better, uh, root mean squared error and R squared um to second season era than any of these era indicators so if you uh find an equation which we did and we put it in the article for um predicted era based on 2019 or the year sorry the year before's you can do this for any season the year before's um strikeout minus walk rate you're more likely to get an accurate era for the following season than if you used x era sierra x fit fit or era I know a lot of people like to use uh, K to walk rate, as you're mentioning. It's, it's interesting that this panned out to be such a great stat for this scenario here. A lot of people, a lot of really good pitching gurus like to use K to walk rate to kind of look at how a pitcher's improved from point A to point B type situations. Um, is is there any, I don't know the right word to say, why would you think that this comes out to be such a good indicator of ERA? Because some guys just strike out a ton of guys and don't walk and he would still give up a lot of runs. I get it. If you're striking out more than you walk, there's less guys on base and you get more outs. I understand that aspect of it. But I just wondering, what's your thoughts on maybe why this one stood out over the rest? I would guess that strikeout minus walk rate is just a great indicator of dominance um, because it penalizes the pitcher for walks and it rewards the pitcher for strikeouts. And, you know, if a pitcher is giving up a lot of balls in play or home runs, but more, let's just stick to balls in play, um, then he can get burned pretty easily, but, um, and that'll change year to year. So his, it, it's much harder for him to control his ERA year to year. Um, whereas if he's more reliant on strikeouts, um, the ball never goes into play, he gets the out. So I think that, you know, basically it just, it just speaks to how, like we were right with our intuition with SIP, you know, 20 years ago or whatever, when it first came out that balls in play and home runs um, 
although home runs are included in FIP, that balls in play and home runs in general are just fickle. They, you know, they, they change quite a bit for each pitcher year to year. They're often based on luck and therefore, I mean, there's some skill in how you manage contact, but for sure, strikeout minus walk rate is more predictive because, and also because those, that's, it, it, it in and of itself is a sticky skill. Like you're a pitcher's True. walk rate, a pitcher's strikeout rate, those things um, stabilize after uh, quite a bit of time. So it's, it's a nice uh, measure of ERA in a future season. See, Dan's a nice guy. Dan could have said, Bubba, it's it's obvious why K to walk. But he explained it nicely, like like, like he does. Like, it could have been like, Bubba, come on, think a little bit here. But um, another question I want to ask you just by looking at this, I find it interesting. It makes sense to me, but maybe maybe you could explain the correlation between the two stats that make them similar. But when we did the in-season FIP and XERA were kind of close in the two best. When we go to the next season, they're very they're like identical, but like the two low ones. Can you yeah. explain to the listeners why maybe FIP and XERA seem to stick together so much? My guess is that, well, first of all, obviously both account for walk and strikeout rate. And the only difference between the two of them is how they account for balls in play. My guess would be that the reason is that basically by taking the averages of a pitcher's balls allowed in play, which is what XERA does, uh, by taking total averages and applying them to the actual uh, hits allowed, you're going to get a pretty similar result if you just completely ignore them as well. I mean, I you know I haven't done any analysis to prove or disprove that, but that might be one reason why um, you know it's it's I mean maybe just pitchers on average give up similar contact across the board to some degree. Um, and so therefore, if you're just giving them averages, you might as well just ignore them too. I mean, it doesn't, it, it almost makes very little difference because all of their balls in play are, are similar to other pitchers anyway. Um, that said, one, one thing I did want to add was that we actually looked into DRA, which is baseball prospectuses um, ERA indicator. We didn't add it to the article because we did it afterward, but I will add that for, um, the DRA in year one to ERA in year two, the R squared was 0.135. So it is um, about as good uh, as a predictor for future performance as uh, FIP and XERA, just like we were talking about. Not as good as XFIP or Sierra or strikeout minus walk rate. I smell a third article coming up in the pipeline for you on this topic. I just, just a hunch. Just, it, it sounds like it's coming, <laughs> but uh it's very interesting to see how this all goes because we're all looking for the next way to kind of uh, figure out how good a guy is and how to predict how good they're going to be next year without, you know, using the great resources like ATC and Steamer to do it for us. They're, they're, it's nice to be able to kind of look at numbers and maybe not make a full set of projections for every player, but give a good argument of why this guy's going to be better or not the next year. So it's fun to to, to talk about this kind of stuff. Before we wrap up, I, I have to ask you, because I've pestered you in DMs before. I've read your articles and quoted them in my, my written pieces many times. And uh, I know we've talked about it multiple times on my show because you've made a few articles on it. What's the latest and greatest? Because I know your mind is always racing, maybe not on this subject per se, but I, I'd imagine you've thought of things here and there on your ballpark factors, your barrel per, pull bar, pull, per ballpark factors. Uh, I know you've done a couple articles on that. Alex Fast has done something similar, but you guys have some great work on that. So what's kind of the latest and greatest on that? Or are we just kind of sitting back and relaxing for now 
and, and sitting pretty with what we got. Yeah, so I wrote um, a few articles on ballpark factors a couple months ago, like maybe in December, uh, in January. And um, so I looked at, you know, um, creating ballpark factors based on barrels uh, for hitters. Um, so where's the best place to have your barrels converted into home runs and which directions in those places um, as well. And then I did the same thing for hitters, but not using barrel rate. Um, instead, using, um, you know, WOBA minus XWOBA, I think, or XWOBA minus WOBA, now I can't remember. But um, basically looking at outcomes versus actual outcomes versus deserved outcomes and where, uh, because those are um, graded on uh, run expectancy scale, so they're good for pitchers, like good measures for pitchers. Um, I don't have anything in the works uh, in that regard. We did, um, Tim and I, um, incorporate um, these park factors into the next generation of predicted home runs. And basically, um, I am ready, willing, and able to write uh, an, an update to predicted home runs, which is much, uh, it's overdue. Um, we're just waiting on a couple technical things because we really want to get it on. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, but PitcherList has a leaderboard now where you can see stats. Um, and so we want to get it up there too. And so once we can figure out the technical issues and get it on the leaderboard, then we're going to update and publish um, the new iteration of predicted home runs. So, I mean, that would be more, most useful in a season where they're not talking about um, players playing in Arizona because, you know, we have, <laughs> we have their ballpark factors incorporated into our predictions for their home runs, but um, it is what it is. It'll be more useful the following season, I guess. Yeah, no, I just wanted to ask you, like, I wasn't trying to put pressure on you, but I, I'm, thoroughly like intrigued by the articles you have coming out. Max Freeze has had some good stuff on park factors because it's not just the simple, you know, you go to ESPN or Fangraphs or any of them who've done their work for it, but it just kind of spits out a number. And this is what like, it's like you rank like based on that number, who's good and bad. Like you actually, right. you guys break it down to lefties, righties, versus lefties, righties, ballparks, barrels, non-barrels. Like you take it to the whole level of, you know, if, if someone goes to the baseball savant page and then has your page next to it or your chart next to it, they can really sit there and go, okay, this guy's going to flourish here. Cause you know, like right now I'm a part of a group of 30 guys that are doing that. We're recreating baseball. Basically we are doing OTP and we, I'm the giants and we're all taking turns in a snake draft, building a new baseball team. And as, as people that played OTP, it takes into the defenses, bark factors, all those things. So you build your team a little different than you would for fantasy baseball. So I would be lying if I haven't said that I've looked at your articles in the last few days <laughs> to kind of, because I already kind of knew how the Giants stadium operates, you know, don't right. hit the ball to pitcher the triples alley. I get it. But, um, you know, righties actually can hit home runs there, people. It, it's possible. You'd be surprised. Yep. But um, you can see it in your articles. So I want to say thank you. And that's why I wanted to ask because, I, I've said it about many guys at Pitcher List, and I've said it on the show a lot. I love having you guys on the show because you guys do great work. You guys make it so idiots like me can understand it and learn from it. And it's it's stuff that I could never put on paper, but I love reading. So I wanted to ask you and say thank you for doing all that. Yeah, man. Anytime. How's your uh, how's your team coming out, by the way? How is my team coming out? If you give me great radio here for thirty seconds, I will pull up the roster. It, it's the okay. It's a slow draft, and it's the definition of slow at times. But um, there, again, thirty that. teams. Let, let me let me let me just uh, let me just get on my soapbox here. People who take the full like four hours or whatever to slow draft, they irk 
the hell out of me. I mean, I really like, I do not have patience to sit there and wait three hours and 59 minutes to make my pick, you know? Um, and I'm I don't understand, you. like you, you, you can get updates to your phone, whatever. I probably just lost like half your audience getting pissed off <laughs> at me, but um, yeah. So yeah, tell me chance. about your team. So like I said, it's uh 30 picks around snake draft. So we, we're in round 11 right now. So it's taken a long time, but it's a lot of picks. And it gets deep because you're doing different strategies. It's not like going off a regular ADP. But I got Scherzer. I got Keston Hira because I think he actually flourished in that ballpark. I got Starling Marte, Zach Wheeler, who I think it would be amazing in that ballpark. Uh, Scott Kingery, Dansby Swanson, Adrian Hauser, and, and his sinker is going to be beautiful. Uh, Mauricio Dubon, Jared Kalenic, Jason Castro with his just skills behind the plate. And then I got Hansel Robles as my first reliever. So it's all over the board because we're going so deep. But it's uh, I'm intrigued so far. And it's a lot of versatility with my bats. Like none of them are scary power hitters, but it's it's Oracle ballpark. Right. Yeah. You wouldn't you wouldn't want to build a team around that in that ballpark. And is this like a dynasty format um, where well, what you it is, young players? What it is you, is it's OTP. So yeah, it, it factors it factors in like their age, like their propensity to get injured, all these different factors. So like these young guys will keep getting better. We're going to sim the next three seasons. Every two weeks of the sim, we can make roster moves, trades, whatever we want to do. It's a 50-man rosters because we're not going to make ads and drops. So it's like you load your team up, then you rock and roll. So it's an interesting format. It's a way to pass the time So uh, and still think about baseball, but think about it in kind of a fantasy perspective and kind of a little different. So it's kind of fun um, getting different reactions on Twitter. Like, Hey, why'd you take this guy? And I kind of explain a little bit that, you know, I'm a big Scott Kingery fan, but I kind of like him even more in AT&T park because he can play like three or four positions. He can be, a, he can, he can enjoy the gaps with a little bit of power. He's got some speed. I, I kind of like that about him. So we'll see. Right. Yeah. I like your team. I also think that's a great idea. I kind of wish I participated in that or uh, knew about it before, but um very jealous. That'll be a lot of fun. Well, if, you, if you're really interested in it, stay on the phone after we finish this, and I will have a surprise for you. So <laughs> there right. you go. But um, right before we wrap it up here, why don't you remind everybody where they can find you and you know, plug away, maybe something coming up, your, your stuff we already talked about, whatever you want, floor is yours. Cool, man. Yeah, I don't, I don't have that many plans to, uh, you know, articles on the rise, and I will, of course, continue to publish and write, but – you can follow me on uh, Twitter at fantasy underscore Esquire. And, uh, you know, if you want to just see my snark or whatever. Um, and I hope that the pitcher list podcast moves on in the bracket. And Bub, I have to thank you for having me on again. This was a lot of fun. No problem. I always love talking to you, Dan. It, it, it's a blast. And just for people that uh, maybe are listening uh, for tonight or tomorrow morning, pitcher list did advance. They are in the championship. So, I just saw oh. the tweet. They are in the championship. Wow. Barely edged night. out sleeper in the bust. So it has happened. But uh, everybody can go check out Dan on Twitter at fantasy underscore Esquire. We'll be back with you next week with more fantasy baseball action. But for now, thanks to Bubba episode 276 in the books. Catch you guys later.